0: the thread is being spun and it's been being spun for quite a few weeks that we've been together but now that thread is about to go into the tapestry and the picture going to get clear. Welcome to Uncaged a Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's Word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of Scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's Word in a world That has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page the bible is pointing us towards messiah our savior jesus so we hope you enjoy the bible study today and if you did follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe and if you leave us a five-star review that's a great way to let us know that you say, amen, and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion, does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. 2 Samuel 7, we've been going through the whole story of Scripture. And in this discovery, we find that Scripture itself is intricately woven together, telling a story. And over the last few weeks, it might have felt like that story has stalled a bit. Where is the connection to the rest of the the fabric, to the rest of this tapestry? And tonight is going to be the answer to that question. Because throughout the Old Testament, what we're getting is a picture that's getting us closer and closer and closer to understanding who the Messiah is. Who is this one who is to come? And we started out when we were in Genesis and we came to the fall of man. We focused on this one verse in particular in Genesis 3. It's verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is in reference to the fall of mankind and the sin that Adam and Eve committed. And this is God speaking to the serpent saying, Eve, a woman will bear a son and that son will cause conflict between you and her you your head will be crushed by this offspring but you will bruise his heel and this is the beginning of understanding that a redeemer is coming from the problem of sin that a redeemer is coming from the seed of the woman and so the story breaks out from there after the fall of mankind and they're kicked out of eden we have the story of Cain and Abel and the first son is named Cain as as though to say, because the word Cain means God gave me this man. And so Eve names him Cain as though she thinks this is the appointed one. This is the one who's going to solve the problem that sin created, and he's going to cause the enmity between us and the serpent and Satan. He's going to be the one who fixes it, but Cain turns out to not be the appointed one, he ends up being a murderer and he kills his younger brother Abel. And so there's this conflict of where is this response from God? It's usually the firstborn born in, in Semitic society or in early patriarchal society that would be the one who gets the inheritance. So we think Cain is going to be the answer to this, but instead he's a murderer. And both Cain and Abel are dead. Who is going to be the one that carries this promise forward that God has given, that a seed from the woman will be the one who solves this problem? And then Adam and Eve have another child named Seth. And Seth literally means, in Hebrew, appointed. He is the one, he is the appointed one through whom this promise will carry. And Genesis 5 gives us a description of the descendants from Adam to Noah. And the first descendant listed from Adam is Seth, the appointed one. And it's Seth's line that is described from Seth to Noah up until the flood because Seth is the appointed one through whom the promise will be given. But then the flood happens because sin gets so crazy on in the world that God resets things and he resets it through Noah. But Noah is from the line of Seth. So we see the the picture getting clearer, the, the picture is narrowing. It's getting closer and closer to figuring out who this promised one will be. And Noah's sons are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from the line of Shem, which is where we get the term Semitic, comes Abraham. And Abraham has made a promise by God that he will be the one To whom his descendants will be the one who display god's glory to the world he will be the one through whom the world gets to know god a nation will be born from abraham and it says to abraham in genesis 17 verse 19 god said no sarah your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name isaac i will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So we know that Abraham's son, Isaac, is now the one that the promise will be carried through to. And we see a picture of that promise in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, Abraham is asked by God to sacrifice Isaac on the ridge of Mount Moriah. And he hikes up to the peak of Mount Moriah and he goes to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And as he's about to do so, God stops him and thanks him for being faithful to him, to not being willing to not even withhold his only son for the sake of this promise, for his faith in God. And then he makes a promise to Abraham and Isaac in verse Genesis twenty-two, eighteen, it says, In your seed, through Isaac, all nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice and so that picture of what is to come through the line of isaac was given to us because the peak of mount moriah is just north of the temple mount in jerusalem and is very likely the exact place where jesus was sacrificed for all mankind in the same place that abraham nearly gave his only son at god's request because he's a picture of the future to come. And then Isaac and his wife Rebecca are pregnant. with. They have two sons coming. In fact, God says this about the two sons in verse 23 of Genesis 25. He says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so it's not Esau, the older, but Jacob to whom the promise will be carried out. And Jacob, as he grows, God changes his name to Israel, and that is where the nation of Israel is born from Jacob. And we see the coming of the promised one getting closer and closer. The understanding is getting clearer and clearer of who this one will be that will carry out the promise from the seed of Eve. And Jacob, on his deathbed, He has 12 sons. And he's describing to each of them the blessing and inheritance they are going to receive. And in Genesis 49, the last words to his sons, he tells Judah this in verses 8 through 12. says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? And this is where it gets really interesting. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The scepter is an instrument of a king, of a ruler. And he's saying that the obedience of the people will be to the tribe of Judah. So of all the 12 tribes of Jacob, of Israel, we know that he's going to come. The seed from Eve is going to come from the line of Judah. And verse 11 says this, Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And so verse 11 gives us an interesting picture of that future one to come from the line of Judah. It says that he will bind his donkey to the vine and a donkey's colt to the choice vine. This is a reference to another prophecy that happens in Zechariah and one that is fulfilled in Jesus' lifetime on Palm Sunday. Because Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. And that is a reference to Jesus' first coming And the second half of this verse, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes is almost an exact picture that we get of Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 upon his second coming. It talks about him being washed in the blood of grapes or in the treading the winepress, knee deep as he returns in the battle of Armageddon and conquers in the battle of Armageddon that he treads the winepress knee deep And so the first half of verse 11 is a reminder of the first coming of Jesus, a prophecy of the first coming of Jesus on the donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey, which Jesus came in on Palm Sunday. And the second half of that verse is almost picture-perfect to Revelation 19, upon the second coming of Christ at the battle of Armageddon. And so that's where the book of Genesis ends, but the picture is getting clear. There is someone to come. There is someone who will fix the problem that Adam and Eve caused, the problem of sin. It will be the seed of a woman, but where that person is going to come from has been narrowed down now to the tribe of Judah. But after this, we move on to the rest of the books of Moses, and we see God take the nation of Israel and set them apart from the world. He releases them from Egypt in the book of Exodus when an unbelieving generation ends. A new vibrant generation is led by Joshua. And after Moses dies, and that generation dies in the wilderness, Joshua leads the next generation to conquer and take the promised land of Israel. And then after that, the judges take place, and the people learn how to live under the Mosaic covenant. Because Moses was given the law, but he was given a conditional covenant. If you follow the law, you will be blessed. If you do not, then you will experience these things. And throughout the book of Judges, you see a constant battle between their rebellion and their faith. And when they rebel, they experience judgment. And when they come back to God, they experience God's blessing and his deliverance from their enemies. And then during the period of Judges, we actually we got a glimpse of the coming future through the book of Ruth, of how one short love story sets up the future of the nation of Israel. But the time of the judges ends with Samuel. And in the book of 1 Samuel, we see the the judge, the final judge, comes to his end and he dies. But the people desire a king and God grants them their wishes. He gives them what they desire, a king just like the other nations have. A king like the other nations have was Saul. But his reign was filled with selfish failure and attempts to preserve his power and it ended in tragic defeat to an enemy that prevented Israel from gaining any of the promises God had for them. Up to this point, we have been experiencing David's slow ascension to the throne as he waits on God's timing. And last week, we read about that time finally arriving. As the whole nation of Israel embraced David as their king after the death of Saul, Saul's captain, Abner, and Saul's son, ish last week, we left off finding out that the people have come to David, all of Israel, and he is now their king. And a neighboring king, the Phoenician king from the city of Tyre, built David a house out of cedar. David has also conquered Jerusalem, and the king of Tyre has built David a palace in Jerusalem, God's chosen city, out of cedar. But David has also just returned from bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle and marched it into Jerusalem and put it back in the Holy of Holies where it belongs. And it also now dwells in the city of Jerusalem. That's where we pick up in chapter 7. This is the whole picture. And the thread is being spun. And it's been being spun for Quite a few weeks that we've been together, but now that thread is about to go into the tapestry, and the picture's going to get clear, and it's going to get narrower, and we're going to see even further description of who that coming Messiah is going to be. So verse one, now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. So David, after all this victory, after getting everything that God has done, after conquering Jerusalem, giving God his holy city, bringing the tabernacle to the holy city, and bringing the ark back to the tabernacle, and another king builds David a palace. He's looking in his palace, and he sees out to the tabernacle, and he says, I live in a palace. God dwells in a tent. And that didn't make sense to David. So Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But, that's a big word right there, because Nathan was wrong. Now, this wasn't a prophecy from Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. Nathan's prophecy wasn't wrong, because this wasn't Nathan's prophecy. This was Nathan's encouragement to David's heart. David saw something that didn't make sense to him. Nathan encouraged him. But then Nathan hears from God. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? That's a great question that God is asking. Could you possibly build something I'll dwell in? It's not possible. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Whenever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is saying, I didn't ask for you to build me anything. In fact, it was God's direction and command that caused the tabernacle to be built. God gave Moses the directions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's order. God didn't ask for something else. Verse 8, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the shepherd from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. God is saying, look what I've done for you. I have done this for you. I have put you in this place. I have taken care of your enemies. And he's just continuing to instruct him on who he is. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and have no more, nor shall the sons of the wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Now verse 10 is something that has not yet happened. God has placed the people of Israel into their land multiple times, but they have always been oppressed and at odds with the people surrounding them. They have yet to have Legitimate everlasting peace. This looks like a prophecy about the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20. Then he says, Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now, how great is this? God. Responds to David. David looks out and he says, I live in a palace. God lives in a tent. This doesn't make sense to me. And God's response to David was, I didn't ask you to build me anything. I never asked for that. But what I will do is I'll build you a house. I'll make you the king. I will build you a line that will last forever. And so you can't outgive God. David wants to give something to God. God gives him something way bigger. Than David ever planned to verse 12 when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom verse 13 he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and so now we get something interesting this is like a this is a dual fulfillment David is told by God through Nathan the prophet that God is going to build a house for David through his descendants. It will be an everlasting kingdom. And he says, David, you will not build my house. David will not be the one to get to fulfill the dream. He looked out from his palace and saw God living in a tent, and he says, I want God to have a better place than I live in. And God says, no. You don't get to do that for me I instead will do something better for you and he says your son not you will build me a house this is what gets interesting Solomon is the one who followed David in the kingly line and David spent the rest of his days making sure that his son Solomon would have all of the resources necessary to build God a house to build the temple And Solomon does that. Solomon builds the temple, but it doesn't last forever. So we see a partial fulfillment in Solomon. See, David's son would build God's permanent structure, but that permanent structure didn't last. But God will establish, through the line of David, a permanent king in Jesus And interestingly, the reason the tabernacle was built originally, it gets translated, the word tabernacle means dwells with us. It's so that God could dwell with his people. That's what the word tabernacle means. That's why the tabernacle was built. And in the book of John, in the gospel of John, when it says that, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You could literally translate that, that the word became flesh, or Jesus, God became flesh and tabernacled among us. Because the son of David, because Jesus came through the Davidic line, is the permanent structure. He is the everlasting kingdom. He is the everlasting tabernacle. Because his name in the prophecy from Isaiah, he will be called Emmanuel or God with us, which is the purpose of the tabernacle or the temple. So Solomon gives us a partial fulfillment where he tries to build a permanent structure, but down the road, we get the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, who is the permanent structure. He is permanently God with us. Verse 14, that I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. This section is called The Davidic covenant God offers covenants throughout the Old Testament with his people the first one we see is in Eden if you eat of this fruit you will surely die it's a conditional covenant if you don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you can eat from the tree of everlasting life and so Adam and Eve they fulfill the bad part of the condition and they get kicked out of Eden. We also see Noah has a covenant because Noah, at the end of the flood, the rainbow shines and God says, this is a sign of my covenant with you that I will never again destroy the earth, the whole earth, with a flood. Now, there was no condition on that covenant. God didn't say, if you do this, I won't destroy the earth. He just said, this is my covenant with you. I will not Destroy the earth, the whole earth, with a flood again. And so, as you're looking at promises that God makes, and as He's making a covenant with someone, it's important to ask Is there a condition? Because with Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham that the land would be given to the people to occupy, to His descendants to occupy. There was no condition to that covenant. But when He made a covenant with Moses, there was a condition upon their being faithful to the law. And so because they weren't faithful to the law, they were kicked out of the land by the Babylonians. And then they were able to return 70 years later. And then they were kicked out of the land again in 70 AD, called the Diaspora, when the Romans destroyed the temple. But God's promise to Abraham was unconditional, and Israel was reasserted and existed again on may 14th 1948 and there's been a steady coming of the jews back to the land of israel ever since because god's promise to abraham was unconditional while his promise to moses was conditional and so god will keep his unconditional promises no matter what and in this davidic covenant there is no if he doesn't require anything of david he just tells david this is how it's going to be your son, through you, I will establish a kingdom forever. So the question and the picture has gotten clearer. It's not just from Judah anymore. Now we know he comes from the line of David. And where the Messiah comes, the picture gets narrower and narrower. And that will play a huge role in the book of Kings. Because there is opposition to this plan. Because The serpent was a part of it. In fact, it was the serpent that God was talking to when he said a seed will come from Eve. And so there is a constant back and forth and a desire to disrupt this plan. And you will see this as we go through Kings because at one point the line of David, the royal line of David, is almost completely wiped out. But there's one guy who remains and God keeps that line alive. And then as we move even further in through 2 Kings, we see that the royal line is actually cursed through Jehoiachin or Jehoiakim, whatever name you want to give him. He's given different names. He is cursed and his line is cursed and the royal line of David is cut off because of the incredible sin that exists as the line continues to go further and further. And God gets around this in the Gospels. you ever noticed that there's two different genealogies? In the book of Matthew, there's a genealogy of Jesus. And then in the book of Luke, there's another genealogy of Jesus. But the names aren't exactly the same. They don't line up. They're different genealogies. Why is that? It's because in Matthew, Matthew is he's trying to convince the Jews of Jesus' birthright. And Jesus is part of the royal lineage. And he gives Jesus' lineage through Joseph. Mary's husband. And so, Jesus is connected to the royal line of David that included Jehoiakim, but because Mary was a virgin birth, he didn't have the cursed blood running through his veins, but he had the legal right to royalty through Joseph as his adopted son. And then in Luke, we get a picture of Mary's genealogy. And Jesus still has David's blood running through his veins, but not from, the, not from the royal line through Mary. So God it was able to get around cursing Jehoiakim by utilizing a virgin birth from Mary, literally fulfilling that it will be from the seed of Eve, from the seed of a woman, not of a man. And he's able to get around the cursed bloodline, but still have David's blood running through Jesus' veins. And he still has the legal right to be that fulfillment and that promise was made. And we'll cover all of this again as we move forward through this stuff, but it's just sort of, I hope you're seeing the picture. It should be getting clearer. Verse 18, by the way, before I move on, homework for you. If you want to further understand the covenant that God gives to David, Psalm 89 is the reading you should do. Verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come in this manner of man, O Lord God. Now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant for your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And David's response, as it should be, is humility and exalting God to the position that he deserves. He says, and then who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from egypt the nations and their gods for you have made your people israel your very own people forever and you lord have become their god this is the mission of israel israel is to declare the greatness of god and to be set apart so that people will see that the god of the bible is the real god he's proclaiming that truth here verse 25 now O lord god the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning your house, establish it forever, do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts of Israel, have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. David is saying, I'm humbled. I'm honored. God, your will be done, and I'm so moved that I'm going to pray to you, and this is David's prayer. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessings, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. God, do what you said you're going to do. That's David's prayer. And we see it, we see it come, come true. We see it come true in Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26, the promise comes true. forever and of his kingdom there will be no end in the coming picture is in revelation 19 through chapter 22 of the physical reality to fulfill the spiritual reality that already exists through Christ's victory in the resurrection let's pray father God thank you for this chapter as we study through the scriptures, we see all kinds of interesting tidbits and facts, and we see the thread getting spun, but then we have nights like tonight, where that thread that was spun gets inserted into the tapestry, and you see the whole picture of scripture become clear, and the picture of the Messiah, where he comes from, what he will look like, and the fulfillment of it, all comes together, fitting together like a like a puzzle. God, thank you for that picture, and help us tonight understand it, to see clearer, to know you, and love you more, and to share that information with those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.